I'm Lydia Ricobole, and you are listening to the amazing Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tasneem Chowdhury, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hey, I'm Lakani Chowa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I am Nikhud Khan Marawat, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room podcast with Kusuma Ali. Thank you for stopping by. tuned into the bereavement room a podcast for our community faith and culture featuring representative voices from across the uk and i am your host kolsima ali i am thrilled to be speaking with today's guest today's guest is henna shah welcome to henna hi henna how are you i'm all right i'm all right how are you yeah not bad not bad so I'm really happy that I we have made this happen, actually. We've managed to make this happen, so that's great. Yeah, finally. Yeah. yeah. You've been really busy with the general election, I hear. I have, I have. Or I'm pretending to be busy with the general election, which is <laughs> <laughs> sort of probably the more, the more apt one. I'm like, I work in politics. There's a general election. When did you last knock on a door, Hannah? Um... <laughs> it's sort of the vibe brilliant brilliant exciting times um or not um <laughs> so Hannah, you're going to be talking to us about your mum who sadly passed away in 2005 mm-hmm. um, before we get into that do you want to talk us through your background who you are what you do and where you're from sure sure um so I'm Hannah obviously um I am 25 now so my mum passed away when I was sort of 10. Um, I am sort of born in London. I live in South London now, but I'm from Hounslow, which some of your listeners Ooh, might know. Big up. <laughs> yeah. Big up, exactly. Everyone's from Hounslow. Up the road. Exactly. Um, and I sort of had an interesting journey in that my parents so my mum was born here and she was a sort of second generation Pakistani um but she had lots of sort of mental and physical health problems which meant she was ill for quite a lot of my life and passed away quite young um and my dad is first generation as sort of like spouses of uh migrants often are um and then about six months after my mum passed away um, my dad got remarried to someone else who was also a first generation migrant. So weirdly, I feel like I'm a third generation Bish Pakistani living with two first generation parents, if that mm. um, sounds quite right. And um, I've had sort of quite a weird journey. Obviously, I grew up in Hounslow, if you know it, you know it. It's <laughs> um, a very specific sort of tone to it. Um, sort of grew up quite poor. Um, like you know the story of like living in one room when you're like a child going to the local primary school um, I don't think I saw a white kid in my class till I was like 11 um, and then I actually when I was 11 sort of at the same time as my mum passing away there were all these choices you have to make and I was quite lucky in that at my local primary school my teachers were really supportive of me and clearly like 
thought I had something to give. So I got a scholarship to a really like posh school. Oh, wow. Um, and then from there, I went to um, Oxford University, which is like, wow. <laughs> I was like a bit like, what? Well, this is surprising. Um, so my life has taken, I have a very different life now, I think, from the one that I feel like I was meant to or that I always thought that I would when I was growing up. Mm. And I think I think a big part of what I do now is I work in politics and I'm very active in sort of the charity sector. I'm a trustee for a couple of charities and I'm quite active uh, and I'm an activist. It's sort of very much because what I remember of my mum and sort of her character is and the character that other people have painted for me, right? Mm-hmm. Is that sees her, one that portrays her as very much an an activist in herself, or even if she couldn't be an activist directly, one that definitely a person who gen, genuinely cared about fairness and other people, and that sort of what motivates me now. Which is weird to think that something like that would motivate you fifteen years on, but it. Genuinely, yeah, um, of course. And so, yeah, now I do what I do, and I live a very different life to um, the life that I feel like I was meant to lead. But there you go. And when you say the life that you thought you were meant to lead, what does that look like? If you don't mind sharing us, what could it have been if you didn't go to Oxford or get your scholarship? Well, I think, and maybe this is unfair, and I think certainly now it's unfair but I think if you're from that kind of community and you're a young woman in particular you sort of know the barriers and expectations that are around you and I think my stepmom who I call my mum because that's a cultural thing I love her deeply she moved to marry my dad from Lahore when she was 40 so she clearly brought my dad was already very conservative so she clearly brought lots of her own expectations around marriage and family and what women shouldn't should not do with her and sometimes I think that I I actually know someone and this is not me saying that like the state schools no I live bad at all because one of the boys from my primary school who's also Pakistani and ended up in the same year as me at Oxford which was an odd thing but I always think that he was a boy and his dad was a doctor and people encouraged him and pushed him within his own family. Mm. But he didn't really have that. Mm. My parents never pushed me to be super academic or to like work hard or to tell me they've put me, they actively thought me going to university, even when I was at a fancy school when I was 16, wasn't necessarily a good thing. Mm. Um, so I kind of think about that. And also, I think, and I don't think this is. A personal thing and it's not them trying to be cruel or nasty in any way but I think when you've been brought up a certain way and you've been told that this is what happiness is that you expect your children to find happiness in the same way mm. and so there were like lots of marriage proposals and stuff like that that I have said no to under like a fair amount of duress at certain points to be mm. like that's not 
I don't find that acceptable. And that was part of what made me choose to leave my parents home, which is quite unusual, and move out and live with friends when I left university was because actually I didn't want that. And I don't think they necessarily understood um, mm. I think that's quite a complex issue, but I think maybe lots of your listeners from this, from my background, um, will maybe understand some of the issues that I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I certainly do. And yes, many of the listeners well. Um, you touched on something very important there. I, I sometimes think that that's a generational thing where a certain generation of parents, they they just they don't sort of understand <laughs> what, what that means when you go outside of what their expectations of you are. Um, and yes, it can be unusual when you're from South Asian community in particular, you choose to leave home and then live with your friends, you know, to get that bit more freedom to do what you want to do rather than living up to another generation's expectation due to whether it's cultural or, or, or faith-related, whatever it might be, or belief mm. system. Uh, I, I can resonate with that. Um, it's a tough one, and it is a complex issue, as you say. So, yeah. And, and how are you finding that? Do you, do you still go home to visit your family? You must do. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I do. So yeah. I live nearby, and actually, weirdly, our, it, it really wasn't easy when I left at all. Um, um, because it's sort of one of those things where you're and actually you can't it's very difficult to put the tag of abusive onto relationship because you don't want to see it as that but actually I think no. it's quite an emotionally abusive relationship it is, yeah. Um, yeah. and it's yeah I think now for me I still find it very difficult going home a lot of the time but I think our relationship has improved a lot in terms of even if it is bad, even if I'm upset, which I often am when I get home, I feel like I have somewhere to go. Mm. I know I'm not trapped. I, I know that I can leave if I want, mm. um, which is not a feeling I ever had before. And that I think, and, and it's sad, but it's almost like the knowledge that I can leave whenever I want, if I have mm. to, mm. and I have my own space and I'm safe. And happy in that space away from them almost mm. makes it easier to have that relationship yeah yeah I hear you it takes a while for that to evolve and for that yeah. to, to happen and in time that relationship does improve I can I hear you on that I am with you on that experience I've been there myself mm. um it is a tough one but good for you though and Ugh. And the marriage proposal thing, I, I'm going to laugh a little bit because I was laughing inside as you were saying that. <laughs> I know what that. I know what that's like my when you favorite, get these CVs. <laughs> my favourite is there's one particular person and bless him. I didn't say anything wrong with him particularly, but I just wasn't into it. And they were obsessed with the fact that he worked at Google. And I was kind of like, he's so great. He works at Google. And I was oh, yeah, like, whatever. I mean, whatever. Like, can you, can you stop devaluing me as a person? Like, hello, I have a good degree. I'm yeah. at Oxford. I'm your yeah. child. Yeah. But he has a job at Google and that means I should marry him because that's the best you're going to get. God, I hate um, that. But it's actually quite, I think you have to find humour in these things. Like all my friends, and I call him Google Man and ask after him, uh, which is... Have you met him or no? It's just 
someone you I, met there. I have met him actually. Oh, okay. Um uh he's related to my stepmom, obviously. Oh. Why not? Why not? Oh gosh. All related to each other, obs. That's totally legit, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but actually the sort of hilarious turn of events, just after I left home in quite a traumatic way. He decided, him and his parents decided to fly over from the US and come and see me. Like, totally, I had no say in this whatsoever. I was like, well, okay, I guess. Um, and I was working a really difficult job. I was working in the third sector, working for an organisation where I had to do a lot of weekend work. Mm. Um, and I remember we were right in the middle of the biggest, sort of the most stressful period that we had to be in. And... I was like, I'm not staying at home, and but they were like, and, and my parents were like, please, like, don't make us look bad, like, please come and stay at home. And I was like, I genuinely, one, I don't want to, and two, I can't, even if I wanted to, because I've got so much work to do. And I remember after one of our events, I met him and his family at the Tate Modern, and we had this like awkward like hangout <laughs> at Tate Modern where the two of us walked around, and I was like. Okay, oh so I quite like art. Do you like art? And he was like, no, this is stupid. And I was like, okay. And I was like, well, it's your first time in London. What do you want to do? I'll take mm. you somewhere. Come on, I'm trying to be super, super nice, which I thought was me being really magnanimous considering the situation. Mm. Um, and and then he was like, why don't we go and watch a film? And instantly I was like, are you oh, joking? Oh, my God, that's real. <laughs> I was like, oh, are you joking? You've come to like one of the biggest cities in the world for two days to meet someone you supposedly want to marry and you want to go and see a film. And oh. I was just like, I can't, I can't deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I can't deal with this at all. None of this is okay. And then when I was there, my stepmom, I came back a bit flustered. And in front of me, my stepmom apologised. Her sister was like, oh, I know she's not very made up. And I was just like, awful. And she didn't mean it like that. But I was like, you're being a cow. You are just being a cow. Um, So that was an interesting period in my life. Um, Suffice to say, I am happy in that I've got to have zero more trips to the Tate Modern with Google Man. (laughs) And slightly odd parents. I'm a slightly odd parents in tow. Um, So that's a good thing. Lovely. I love that story. Shout out to Google Man. <laughs> bless him. Yeah, bless him. Oh, so, Heather, yeah. um, in your own words, I mean, wherever you want to begin, it doesn't have to be neat or tidy. Kind of talk us through, um, you know, what happened with your mum, how old you were, where you were mm. at the time and what that looked like for you and your family. Sure. Um, I guess without getting stop me if I get too rambly because I have a habit of telling a story and telling lots of stories of the branches of the original story that's all good go for it um okay good I'm also quite sensitive about it because uh my uh boyfriend says I have a uh personal line in the boring story Uh, there we go he's just mean um (laughs) so I guess I was about seven uh when it started so um not only obvs because when you marry your cousins everything's just wrong with you right um so my mum sort of went through 
quite a traumatic, or her and her family had quite a traumatic childhood. Mm. And my grandma and granddad moved to Hounslow, you know, like fresh mm. off the boat in the late 50s. And my stepmom became, and my stepmom was 19, my stepmom, my grandma was 19, um, mm. and just, you know, started popping them out, um, mm. as you do. And she, I think she, my granddad, rest his soul, um, mellowed in his old age, but wasn't a very nice man. And my grandma was very much stuck in this quite abusive relationship herself. Um, and she was very uh, mentally unwell. Um, she was sort of alternately manic depressive and a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, Gosh. And she had four children. So my mum was the oldest. Mm. And she has three younger boys. Um, and obviously my mum being the oldest, uh, and back in the day actually mental health provision being what it is, her mum was, my grandma was sectioned quite a few times. Oh, gosh. Um, and my mum ended up having to care for her three brothers. Oh. Uh, and actually, for a short time, they all went into care. And I think they all had a pretty rough time in care, it being like the 70s. Mm. Uh, so you can imagine, I yeah, I don't want to speculate on how they were treated. Um, and then she got a bit older. And actually, what was sad was that I think, and this sort of relates to how I feel about it, is that my mum was dyslexic, but no one ever caught it. Mm. It was particularly difficult because her own mum was a teacher. Oh, um, but she just, you know, wasn't cared for properly and no one ever realised that actually she was incredibly intelligent, but she was dyslexic, which is the thing people understood. And my grandparents didn't really prioritise female education. And they were actually quite well to do as people. Um, but my mum was very much or felt um, like she was written off as stupid so her three younger brothers my granddad paid for them to go to private school um and my mum was sent to like the local church school mm. which I think always sort of made her feel kind of uncomfortable and like changed our relationship quite a lot because to her me getting a really great education was very important because I guess because of her own experience because mm. of her because of the fact that she was a girl and she um was well, obviously she was lovely she was my mom it's a weird thing to say but she was lovely but we had quite a troubled relationship um when I was really little mm. um mainly because she was quite mentally unstable herself yeah um she was a paranoid schizophrenic as well or she mm. had paranoid schizophrenia it's probably not appropriate to call people paranoid schizophrenics in that way um and sort of with a very liable to like mood swings and when you're a small child that can be very difficult to interpret mm. um and it's sort of quite hard to understand why people are behaving in that way so we had a bit of an odd relationship but she sort of did things and like cared for me in a way I think that she wasn't cared for herself like I always went to like fun camps and read loads of books and she always made sure that I had something to do and I'm, I'm an only child as well so I think okay. it was pretty important to her that 
I sort of went and met lots of other kids and did lots of things and I went swimming and I went and did all the things that she never got to do and mm. and but she was always quite lethargic and I think part of that was now looking back on it probably a pretty strong medication that she, she was on mm. part of it was because she had um undiagnosed bowel cancer um, oh, and when I was about seven mm. like it was obviously quite up and down because my her and my dad had a very had a very uh temperamental relationship mm. um when I was about seven she stopped taking her medication mm. and she decided to leave home okay um and she made this friend who was this hilarious woman who's sort of like placard wielding radical who obviously <laughs> the grandparents and my dad hated but I thought she was quite funny um you sort of go yeah. around to the house and they'd be like placards stacked up from the latest march um and she made that decision and she left and chose and I went to stay with my grandparents because mm-hmm. my dad could look after me on his own and their oh. relationship was sort of a bit weird and kind oh, of very prone to fits of anger okay. um, and I remember my mum coming to pick me up at school mm. and me being like okay what's going on and she decided to take me out of school mm. um, and in her mind she was fleeing an abusive relationship and getting herself out there Mm. um now it's quite hard for me because I remember like snippets of conversation about her talking about abuse and like I'm very close to my dad but I recognize and like, I'm very very deeply attached to, to my dad mm. um, but I also recognize like he can be incredibly emotionally abusive mm. and I don't so it's quite hard for me to understand like how much of that was her mental health and how much of it was you know, legitimate things that he'd done. And it was, it's quite difficult when you're a child to like split all the Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I still don't fully really understand because I think I like trying to jog my memory on that bit. It's quite hard. Mm. And I remember sort of like going around London, I'm going to sort of pot it all because it's quite a long story and we'll end up dragging out this podcast for ages if I tell you the whole story because it's a bit mad. But um, essentially, we ended up in a women's refuge in East London, a women's refuge in East London, rather, uh, sort of a tongue twister. Um, and yeah. um, she, like, her mental health clearly deteriorated. Like, there was a time where she sat up stuff against the door and she was clearly paranoid. Oh, gosh. And, and I don't know how paranoid or, like, whether the paranoia was her or something else. I don't know. It was all a bit odd and quite difficult to understand. Mm. And we were there for a couple of months um but I think she essentially did something to get I think it was her mental health I think she started an argument I'm not quite sure what it was but I was about to start going to school in East London and stuff um and she essentially got thrown out of uh the woman's refuge Oh gosh, why why uh, was that? I don't I don't really know. Um I sort of have like snippets of 
memories of things but I I couldn't tell you what it was or why it happened and I remember being a bit annoyed because I'd just started school right um again um and and I always had this thing of it being quite tough because I think I went to the same school from the age of like three to the age of 11 and I was very comfortable there and the teachers this makes me sound like a little bit of a knob so I apologize but the teachers knew I was quite clever Mm. it's actually like if you're a brown kid whose mom's come from the local refuge and you go into oh yeah uh, primary yeah. school particularly like if a lot yeah. of the other kids are white yeah then people think you're an idiot <laughs> yeah but I yeah that in his classroom being like yes I can add one pound fifty to one pound <laughs> do I look like like and actually just not even trying because I was like these people clearly think I'm a moron and just not mm. just not doing it that, that's quite a common perception actually if you're that only brown yeah or black kid that is in an all-white community area they just kind of assume that you're not that smart and you actually have to work really hard to prove them wrong yeah I think that's very much it and like at the time I didn't even think about it but now I'm like well obviously they just thought you were a little brown kid who was obviously stupid I don't even think that they thought I could speak English properly I think they just assumed oh god Uh, and I was like okay well I'm fine with that I'm just gonna do my thing um and then we went and we ended up in um sort of story short we ended up in bed and breakfast accommodation in Golders Green where I actually made some friends um and it's weird because I can't remember their names and like that's actually it's something I hold on to and I find really sad now um because they were all um some of them are Afghani refugees um and some of them were refugees from other parts of the Middle East Mm. um and I was like you know seven and a half by this point and I'd felt like quite lonely and it had been quite tricky mm. um but actually like we were there for about three months and I actually went to school again and actually I used to go to school with them and actually within the B&B I know and and I could see that other people were quite threatened by the boys like, there were loads of like teenage boys of like 14 or 15 making trouble but actually we had a like community of people and mm-hmm. we had sort of like had a couple of girls and a couple of boys who I knew really well and sort of looked out for me in a way that like no one else had done for quite a while mm. and then my mum started seeing this weird Irish man okay I, I don't really know what happened I think he was very he was kind of old I think she went to mass with him once and he brought flowers once I mean the whole thing was bizarre and then the next thing I remember was were rather um and this is where this ties in is that like I could see my mum getting a bit like more withdrawn and like being quite ill and getting more and more ratty and like she's obviously quite ratty for this whole period but like more and more ratty um and uh I don't really know what happened and like what happened next all the days sort of blurring to one big day mm-hmm. but um I remember the police turning up and being in the back of a police van and being like oh okay what's going on and they're like we're gonna take you home and I was like you're gonna take me what you can take me home okay that doesn't really make sense there are lots of people here I don't really know what's happened um and it turned out my dad had um taken legal action and actually had to go had to appeal to the high court for custody 
Oh, gosh. Uh, but I didn't know that at the time, right? I was like, okay, there are lights here. Oh, there's a person. I'm just going upstairs to talk to my friends. And the policeman was like, you can't go upstairs to talk to your friends. And I was like, okay, well, this isn't nice, is it? Um, and I went home and I was very unclear. And basically, shortly after, my mum checked herself into like an independent mental health facility. But what... Mm what continued to happen was she kept being sick and this went on for months and months and because her mental health was so bad I think people assumed that she was putting it on people assumed that she had irritable bowel syndrome people assumed that you know there were all sorts of things that were wrong Mm -hmm. Uh, but obviously like you don't listen to a mad woman when you say like is it nice you know it's just you're talking in to a brick wall because people don't take your symptoms seriously if they think you're not lucid mm-hmm. um and so that was quite hard and then about six no a few months later she came back probably fewer than six months my timelines are messed up and she was still really sick she was still throwing up and I moved back in with my dad and my mum and we all lived together but she kept getting really really ill and kept throwing up and she kept having, my dad had to keep taking her to acts in the emergency, being like, why is she throwing up? Like, why is she consistently throwing up? Mm. Um, and she went back to A&E about four or five times. And they were all like, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, they all clearly thought it was psychosomatic, right? After she'd been put back on some quite strong medication. Mm. Uh, maybe she was doing it for attention. You know, all the behaviours that's around mental illness, right? Mm. And- Actually, there was one surgeon who was like, well, she'd been in a few times. And actually, after about five A&E visits and about another six months of faffing, mm. they took her to have a scan. And it turned out she had a massive tumour in her large bowel. And she'd oh, had it gosh. probably since I was about... And since I was about five or six, like, it had just been growing for years and no one had noticed. Mm. Um. And she had to go through chemotherapy and an operation. And, like, that was quite tricky. And then she went into remission. And uh, Mm. it's weird because I feel like I should have feelings to say about, like, I've just described what happened before in quite a lot of detail. And I can tell you how I felt. But I honestly don't think I can tell you how I felt through her first period of having cancer. I think... By that point, like, it just seems so normal. Mm. Odd, but, like, the routine that I had, and I guess when you're a child, if someone says, this is your routine, this is where your mum is, this is where your dad is, this is yeah. where you're... then that's what you do, and you don't think it's weird. No. And so we did that, and then she went into remission, and I guess we had sort of about six or seven months where we did lots of things together, and, like, you know... She went back to uni and started training to become a nutritionist. Oh, um, wow. Um, which is, yeah, really good for her. Um, and then a little bit later, she started having pain again. And this was sort of like probably a year and a half later. I'm trying to, it all blends in to one quite a lot. Yeah, but I probably would have been about nine, nine and a half. Oh, uh, she started getting pain again. And yeah. I was being like, oh, what's going on? Okay, this isn't good. And she went back 
to the doctor and the doctor was like well you've left remission and I don't really remember how it happened but I remember my dad showing me a diagram that the surgeon had drawn him Mm. and I was like a massive nerd right like <laughs> like little Asian kid who like didn't have any siblings who read books all the time yeah and so he was like here's a picture of what's happening and it was like a small intestine and he was like look there are lots of little lumps so what we can't do is we can't like we can do chemo to slow it down and we can cut out a bit of a bowel but there's mm. nothing that we can do to like stop it and I was like okay what does that mean and like it's quite difficult to understand and when I was like well that means she's going to die and I was like well isn't everyone I didn't really understand like what that meant yeah especially like, at that age how well, he's supposed to well well I was like okay well we all die at some point right so like mm. yeah yeah I, I was like duh that's obvious um I remember being like no no not in the way that you think um and then I guess I put it out of my mind she had an operation and she had a stoma bag, which is like a bag that you attach when you cut off some of your intestine so that like to bypass part of the bowel, which is kind of gross. But also I'm like, so by by this point, I'm now so used to dealing with like various like bodily fluids of various descriptions. And mm. um, there it's like not a big because it's kind of gross because you have to empty it. Right. And it's basically yeah. like, I mean don't eat don't listen while you're eating but it's basically that half <laughs> poo and, and if you don't realize and it's quite hard for you to be able to tell like how much you're gonna have and stuff so a lot of the time like you wake up and it's burst because you don't know like how much you're gonna digest because who knows that right like that's just mm-hmm. a weird thing mm-hmm. um and it looks kind of weird and the whole thing was a bit like Ugh gross and there's one it's it's really weird because I didn't really see my parents as like having a sexual relationship at all I don't remember many of the things my mum said like during that period but Mm -hmm. I just remember her like being in the bathroom my dad helping her and her being really really upset like genuinely upset for the first time um because I don't think that she knew I was there and then she was rich, she was crying, and he was like, what's wrong? And then he was like, and then she was like, oh, well, then I look so awful. And then he was like, what do you mean? And then she was like, oh, I look so awful without clothes on. And he was like, oh, that doesn't matter, don't be stupid. And she was like, no, no, no. And it clearly, like, she hadn't, she struggled with her weight and stuff, but, like, clearly there was something that having that was just like almost too much of now I think about it and reflect on it like almost too much of an affront to like being a woman Mm, yeah to be now being seen as uh, yeah the whole thing yeah um and then she sort of deteriorated and like it was quite hard because she had to be on morphine when she was at home and trying to get hold of morphine if you've ever tried it is almost impossible um so, and, yeah. so the morphine. Sorry, um, did the hospital send her home to, to with the morphine or? Yeah, so she was at home with sort of um, like one of those portable pain things. That's a really bad way of describing it, but you basically press it and morphine is injected. Okay, into it. okay. Um, 
and she was in so she could spend some more time at home right because mm-hmm. she was in such pain mm-hmm. um and like we had district nurses in and out and they were really nice um yeah. but actually it was a real struggle I remember to get hold of morphine and I just remember like I used to sleep with her quite a lot I used to sleep with like my parents alternately until I was quite old actually I found it quite difficult like when my dad got married again I was like I can't sleep with you and obviously everyone else thought it was pretty bloody weird a 10 year old girl sleeping with her dad but I was like I'm just so used to it I was like I can't be on my own and and she yeah, she was often in a lot of pain because it was so hard to, t- to get hold of. And I think after like one too many like long trips on the bus to try and get her more morphine in the middle of the night, they were just like, well, I just can't carry on like this. So she went into a hospice, which was weird because I think she lowered the average age there by a good sort of 30 years. Mm. Um, and then she was just there. And then we had the routine that we'd go and see her. But actually by this point, she'd be- come mainly like her ability to communicate basically gone um and she lost the capacity to eat so we all knew and that that is almost the worst thing is that we think about someone dying and like you think about cancer you think about the ways you can die like you don't and this is probably going to be a bit harsh so I don't mean it like that I don't mean for you to feel uncomfortable but essentially when I think about it and when you think about it actually just watching her starve to death like that, oh, that's that's but that's that's what it was because she couldn't eat mm. without regurgitating it, mm. and and I remember like trying to hydrate her mouth and like rubbing sponges that tasted sweet on her lips so she didn't like but she had such a dry mouth that we knew she couldn't drink mm-hmm. so it, it it was just this awful thing where it was like well it's not and actually it was like what's going to kill you first the spread of the disease or actually just like wasting away, mm. um. And it was odd. Weirdly, I quite liked the hospice. I liked the environment. Um, I liked the staff there. I remember being, I think I was just like quite precocious. So I had lots of people to talk to, right? Mm. Uh, and there were lots of sort of old people who I sort of rubbed along quite well with. And I used to hang <laughs> out with, with all the old people while they did their like day centre activities. Yeah. Just like... 10 year old brown girl and all these like <laughs> geriatric white people um, <laughs> totally legit fine um and I don't feel yeah, that's all like a blur but I think the most surprising thing about grief is I remember the phone ringing I remember it really really clearly and I remember being at home and I was with my dad and the phone rang Mm. And he answered it, and it was clearly the hospice calling, being like, well, I don't think she's got long left. You should come and see her. Mm. Um, And I... It's weird, I still feel ashamed talking about it, but I was almost like, a bit of me was excited. Yeah. A bit of me was like, oh, and I was like, this is the bit that I've been waiting for, right? And I don't know... I think it's quite a childish thing to like be like well I've mentally been preparing for so long and I remember I was like it sounds odd but I knew what outfit I was gonna wear I knew like how I was gonna be I knew like 
all you anticipated it all like really like an, I'd over prepared for the situation and mm. um, I like turned up dressed like I genuinely I dressed like a bizarre child going to an office I was wearing like I still remember it like wide leg gray trousers with pink pinstripes <laughs> and I don't know weird and a like shirt collar that was white with like this pink and green pattern on it that you, you you know those weird tops that are like collars attached to actual tops yeah uh, yeah and and it was attached to like a black v-neck and I was wearing like black boots and I thought I looked really like sophisticated and serious and that was like really appropriate and sophisticated and serious um and I was like this is bizarre <laughs> like I turn up in my like weird tiny person going to work outfit (laughs) (laughs) some sort of like mental preparation and I remember turning up and seeing and I remember being actually maybe this is something I don't really want to go into that much but like being really shocked seeing her dead and and like so you arrived at the hospice, sorry, um, mm-hmm. in this fun outfit that yeah, you had outfit. And she'd, she'd already died by, by the time you... Oh, gosh. Um, and, like, I remember touching her and her feeling cold and that being scary. Um, and I also remember, like, maybe not being as sad as I should have I'm not even... Be, I just didn't really, I guess, didn't really know what to feel. Um, and I remember dramatically crying in the corridor of the hospice, but also at the same time being like, in my mind, I was like, I'm dramatically crying because I should be dramatically crying. And I was like, I have to dramatically cry because if I don't dramatically cry, then everyone will think that I don't care. Um, which was just odd thing that was going through my head while I was dramatically crying. Mm. Um, and I remember being like, oh, I must do this. This is the right thing to do. Um, and then my grandma turned up. And she was going through a proper, like, totally bonkers phase, um, which was just unhelpful for everyone involved. She was like, Julian McKee says, like, two weeks earlier, she'd be like, Julian McKee says you should stop taking medication and you should just eat macrobiotic food and that will cure it. And everyone was like, please shut up. Um, and, and then she was like, please let me take her to Pakistan so I can take her to a spiritual healer. And I was like... And was like, can you not? This is really not appropriate. Just, just no. And so she was hovering around, like, chatting some totally mad whatever. Like, I don't even even remember what it was. It was so... But how could she take your mum to a spiritual healer if your mum had already died at that point? Is it just because... She... She, she was convinced she wasn't dead. And, like, a few oh, weeks ago, she'd said, and I was just like, okay, I'm just not having this. And I was like fine and being sat there and then I remember going to the mosque and this is the less sort of interesting bit is obviously like you go to the mosque and then like the women wash the body and obviously oh, I wasn't there. So you weren't present is there a reason I, why you weren't present? I think I was too young I think oh. they decided that I was it wasn't appropriate for me oh. to go and see her like that. Oh, you're 10 years old is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah so I think they they well, I think my dad and my uncles probably made the decision that actually being there while they washed the body probably wasn't a, the right mm-hmm. thing to do. Fair enough. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And then 
I remember the like funeral procession and so like I'm sure you know but obviously when um a Muslim person dies it's very clear in the mosque or the masjid that it's happened um and you try and bury them as soon as possible and she I mean people were like going on about how great it was that we got to bury her on a Friday and I was like okay well yeah I'd rather not bury her but yeah let's go for a Friday that's very good everyone's very happy um and obviously like all these men pouring out from the mosque behind the coffin Mm. um and then just like being very uh, I remember being sat in the car with my aunt um and being quite confused and my aunt was like oh I don't know what to do like we're not really allowed in graveyards and I was just like allow that I mean I've literally no just the whole thing just made me has made me so against the whole women can't be in graveyards thing that I just yeah I just can't deal with it so um, so what happened? Did you get out the car? Did so you? No, I did get out the car because my dad came over and my dad was like, my dad clearly made the decision and was like, actually, she probably needs to see that. I think nice. everyone, I think everyone thought I was in shock and that I hadn't really like registered that anything had happened because I was behaving like so normally. Mm-hmm. Well, not normally. I was quite, I was quite a weird kid, but like, nor- normally, as in, I was like. I'd turn like I'd wore my outfit. I was going about my day. I was acting like mm. quite calm and quite rational in the situation, not how you maybe would expect a child to behave. Yeah. Um. So I think he was like, "You should come and you should like see it with me." And then I remember he like gave me um like a handful. My hands are really tiny at this point. Gave me a little handful of earth, and he was like, "I want you to put." that on top and I was like okay gosh that's sweet and and I was like okay and then I was like can I go home now and I was like yes well I guess you can go home and then obviously there's like all the stuff that comes after in the mosque of like people going in and out and like people reading the Quran and like Mm. eating and stuff like that and I didn't really feel like I was part of that Mm, why is that Uh, so, like, I never really, like, my Arabic reading is all right if I try really hard, but I never had, like, the same amount of religious education as lots of other people, so I didn't really, like, understand. Mm. Uh, and my dad, like, he's, he tends to be quite solitary, and obviously when, you, when you're brought up in that kind of dysfunctional, mm. like, situation like those things that really happen like we went to Sunday school for a bit and actually I remember my mum used to go to Sunday school as well obviously she was in a different class um but I remember like the woman at Sunday school was this terrifying Egyptian woman in a niqab and I must have been about six and she just shouted and I was like what is the point of this and every break every week I used to see my mom and be like, I've learned nothing. This woman just shouts me. I can't see her face. So I don't know what she's saying. And I don't like this. <laughs> and she was like, you know what? Legit, fair. You could do something more exciting with your time. Go read another book or something. Oh. Um, so I guess I felt quite divorced 
from it and I had like there were some people who I really liked like some of my mum's friends who I really cared about and I'm particular I don't even remember who he is and I barely even remember his name but my mum had a friend from Sunday school I don't even remember her name but they were like old family friends and her brother was a surgeon and he was really fun and I really liked him I don't know whether I liked him because he was a new person or he's come to see my mum quite a lot mm. um I, can't, I think maybe it was Dr Rasheed I can't even remember because my dad was near a friend's him right he was one of my mum's old friends mm. and I remember that he was clearly thought of not as well as other people um and I don't think his sister was either because she'd married a white man and he'd married a white woman mm. Um, and so my grandparents clearly didn't like them, but okay. they were both really, really nice. And I remember being sat with him and him like, I think maybe because he was a surgeon, he used to tell me, he used to tell me loads of interesting stories. And so I used to just go and like listen to him tell me about like nerd things. And so he was there and I remember him being there and him telling me about nerd things. Um, <laughs> and like my uncles being there, but also just like loads of like, random weird uncles who I just didn't know and like yeah people who my mum would be like my my mum was clearly very like from her own like life and what had happened was clearly like very like stranger danger don't let these weird men kiss you um on like and like all these weird guys who'd be like hello you're cute let me kiss you on the cheek I don't want you to kiss me your old smelly like man with beard <laughs> I don't know you and there were like 10 of you um and I guess, yeah, I felt really divorced from that. And I guess the period after was really hard. Me and my dad, I spent quite a lot with my grandparents. I'm just going to rewind a little bit, sorry, um, right. at, at the fu- funeral bit, because you said that there were no women present at the burial, but your dad took you there. Anyway, he took you out the car. I'm yeah. just quite curious to know what your stance is on that about women standing at a distance or not attending the burial and why you think that is in our faith and culture Um, yeah I I guess I'd like my cultural religious knowledge isn't very good um but I assume I think it comes from like a hadith or something where women they used to pay women to wail at the grave um and that was considered inappropriate and actually I guess it stems less from that and more from a view of women as like emotional and like over dramatic and all that sort of thing. Mm, um, interesting. And well, that's how I perceive it anyway. And I very much like, and, and after my dad walked me out, my aunt came out too. Mm. Um, and so it wasn't just me, but I remember. And I think that would have turned some heads in the community, right? But I think maybe mm. it was a bit different because it sounds awful, but it was my dad telling me that I could go. Yeah, of course. And, and, I, and it was my mum. So it, it was like you can't really get angry with a very quiet 10-year-old girl over her mum's grave. But then my granddad died a couple of years ago. Mm. And dad, 2017, and I remember it was exactly the same mosque, blah blah blah. We did exactly the same thing, and actually, this time I wasn't allowed to go mm. with the coffin to the graveyard. And like, I was like, Well, I want to, and my um, 
this was back when I really I wasn't really speaking to my parents. So my dad was there, um, but my um, and my uncle was like, oh well, I think some of the old buddy duddies in the mosque are a bit annoyed about women coming so don't come and I was like I could have argued but I was just like you know what if you're not gonna tell me I can come I can't be bothered um Mm. probably an awful thing to Mm. say but it didn't at the time feel like the most appropriate thing and I don't think my granddad would have wanted me there well not wanted not not wanted me but like I don't think he would have thought that it was appropriate either Okay, yeah, fair enough. So I was like, fine. Mm, yeah, these, these things are quite complex. Um, I find a lot of that is dictated by culture rather mm. than faith. We talked about the aftermath and that was quite a difficult period. Mm. So, so what kind of happened there? You were with your grandparents? and mm. Well, I think then I went back with my dad because I didn't want to live with my grandparents. My grandparents, and yeah, I think you maybe have gleaned from this entire thing is that they're they're both pretty nuts um <laughs> or like it was just not like not have a child matter I meant they're just both pretty mad um and as I said my granddad mellowed out a lot so um but still had a huge temper on him and still like didn't really think women were worth much um so I was very keen to be back living with my dad because me and my dad are really, really close and like he is very difficult, but we're quite similar. We have quite similar personalities um, in lots of ways, actually. And I've just always felt very close to him. Mm. Um, Even when I was really, really young, I've always felt very close to him. I think part of it has to do with like him being quite quiet and quite silent and me always wanting to grab attention and so me like almost enjoying or like finding it interesting to see how I could get his attention and like that sort of thing mm. and and I was like desperate to move back in with him um and yeah so he sent me to like breakfast club and after school club and then his parents and I think and I wasn't privy to these conversations but his parents had clearly and he'd clearly thought about moving back to Pakistan. Oh, wow. And taking me with him. Oh, gosh. Um, which would have been an interesting uh, turn of events because, uh, like, my family in Pakistan like, aren't mega rich, so it's not like I could have got the same, like, you know, lifestyle or education or anything like that. I think it would have been very different. Um, and he was like, and actually, to be fair to him, he decided not to and decided that I should stay and complete my education in the UK Mm. um and I think then his mum was like well you clearly are incapable of looking after a child on your own because we don't breed our men to look after children on their own we breed our men to be as annoying (laughs) as possible oh god um (laughs) like and demanding and irritating um so she was like, well, then obviously you just have to get married again. And then I remember I was going on a little walk and him being like, how would you feel if you got a new mum? And I was like, oh, all right, God. All right, Dad, it's been like six months. Uh, can we not? Oh, um, God. And then he kept talking about it. And I was like, you know what? If that's what you really want, then yeah, fine. So actually, 
the first time I'd been back to Pakistan since I was like three was to go to my dad's wedding oh, and <laughs> with my stepmom who honestly the first time I met her she was like I obviously didn't really understand like my Urdu was really really bad and like my parents my my mum couldn't really speak Urdu very well and my parents had always spoken to me in English and my grandparents as well mm. so I never like just hadn't had to learn it uh, although I'm nearly fluent now, so I think that says a lot about like, like necessity being the like birth of I don't know the ability to speak a language you never have. Mm. Uh, and I just remember being thrown into this nest of like weird people. Like all these people clearly felt really sorry for me. But they were clearly all like quite slimy. I didn't really trust or like any of them because mm. uh, I mean, let's be honest they all are quite like my extended family like they, they all are quite slimy like you can't trust them as far as you can throw them um mm. and I remember seeing my stepmom and I didn't realize that this was a thing but she was wearing yellow and did oil in her hair and she just looked terrifying someone was like meet your new mum and there was this, this woman like draped in yellow chiffon like reeking of mustard oil and I was like <laughs> <laughs> I was like hi how's it going and she was like <laughs> I like she used to be a teacher but her English is like fine it's much better now but it's not great so we were like I can't really communicate with you and someone tells me you're my mum now so that's great um and so that was quite yeah like weird at the time and I remember one of my dad's sisters I actually got really close to and really sad she passed away now um I used to spend a lot of time with her and her husband because they, I I don't know, I just, yeah, I think her husband reminds me a lot of my dad and she was just, like, very, like, caring and I, like, yeah, she was just lovely. Mm. Um, and then we came back and then I started secondary school and I started school at this, like, really, really fancy school and I was this, like, kid who still came from Hounslow who's, like, mum was in a different country and like all this other stuff that obviously people don't understand and like that you wouldn't really say in already like I'm in a minority because I'm much poorer than the rest of them I don't look like the rest of them my family aren't like them I don't go and do the same things as them like I've never been theatre I don't play tennis <laughs> I, uh, all, you don't all, play squash <laughs> yeah exactly all those weird things like I don't play tennis I don't know what this is do you like know what this is I don't know what's cool like my dad doesn't let me go to sleepovers so I don't know what's going on there um, <laughs> and yeah it was it was weird and it was like very weird growing up with that like dynamic mm. um and being in that situation, I guess, like, I never really, so in terms of the grief of it, I, I remember my dad, um, after my mum died, for a few months, would take me to a therapist. Oh, wow. At the hospice. I think oh, he just wow. was going to, like, lose it. Okay. Um, what was that like? like? I never really wanted to go. I always, always found it kind of annoying. Mm. Um, and she just used to, I, I think I'm, like, I think looking back on it, I was just must have been really precocious and annoying myself. Mm. Um, and actually, I don't necessarily think that she she really understood. 
I actually think my dad might have found it helpful, but I don't know how helpful I found it. When you say that she didn't um, understand, what do you mean by that? I just remember going to talk to her and feeling like there was this like huge barrier between us, and I I feel like I feel like she just made me do really pointless tasks. Like she used to, she asked me to draw my friends, and I remember being like, why am I here, and why is this woman asking me to draw? Like I just don't I just don't understand. Mm. I don't want to. I don't, and I'd be like, my dad doesn't let me go to sleepovers. And then she was like, how do you feel about that? And I was like, well, I like to go to sleepovers. Um, and my dad, obviously in the other room being like, obviously she shouldn't go to sleepovers. I'm scared about what will happen to her. And part of it was like him being scared about losing me. And part of it was just like his own cultural background. And I was like, to be perfectly honest, I'm just going to sit here and draw. Like, I'm not really an artist either. So I think I started getting comfortable being constantly told to draw shit. Um, mm. Like, if I have to draw my friend one more time using like these fell tips where I can't get the range of skin tones in, then like, what is the like, what is the point? My mm. drawing was improving, and we were having the same conversation all over, like again, and again, and again. And I almost felt like, and again, this makes me sound like a bit of a knob, but like. I think I was very precocious and had to go up really, really, really quickly. And so I remember being like 11 and like being taken out of maths to sit with the teachers because I just like just couldn't be asked to, mm. to do it. And then just being like, okay, let's just have a chat then. I can't be bothered. Um, and then, then being like, you should definitely watch 24. You'd really like 24. And I was like, I'm 11. I should not be watching 24. Yeah. What's wrong with you? But they're like, no, you like it. It's totally fine. And actually, I did like 24. Um, <laughs> but it was just, like, it was very weird. And I felt like saying to her, I understand what's happening. Like, I understand this, that you don't need to, mm. like, you don't need to baby me. Like, you don't mm-hmm. need to tell me to draw how I feel because I can tell you how I feel Mm. Uh, and actually I have never been I've always really loved my uncles my mum's family like quite deeply Um, but I think they've often always seen me as like the poor relation Mm. Uh, and like they went to university they went to nice schools and actually one of the things that my granddad did was he was quite wealthy and he gave them all like a house to rent out Mm. which nowadays is like wow your dad gives you a house to rent out yeah it's amazing yeah Yeah. whereas like my parents have owned their own house and he didn't actually give my mum anything Mm. um and I think that relationship was always really difficult like one of my uncles went to Oxford and I felt very ignored by them and I like and maybe now I'm sort of in my 20s and like trying to build my life now I feel a bit more sympathy towards him now mm. um, but I remember at the time being a child feeling like really left behind by them mm. um yeah you know it, from hearing your story I you're incredibly mature child because you had to grow up quickly because of that routine that you had it was almost like normality to you. That's kind of what it sounds like. Is that how you would see it? And that's 
how yeah. you've navigated your grief yeah I think so I think it was really interesting when you put it out because I was like actually it's been interesting thing for me to talk about because for me I never like I've I've had grief now now I understand grief a bit more my granddad died and I felt grief I left home and I felt grief I had like my first relationship break down and I felt proper grief and I was like this is what it means to grieve over something um but I don't I can't really tell you that I felt grief I didn't really know what it felt like or what it was that made sense yeah no it does to me it just sounds like you've as a child you had to grow up pretty fast and you probably didn't have a lot of time to process or think about it with everything going on um so how do you kind of think about you I mean you obviously think about your mum now Mm. do you think about what that grief looks like for you later on as a teenager and a young adult Uh, did that ever come back to you in any sort of way those experiences of what happened when you were a child yeah it definitely did I mean as a child bereaved with everything that was going on in your life as a child you know it's quite chaotic from what I hear how do you kind of navigate the grief for your mother later on as a teenager and a young adult because being a teenager is is that's hard that's tough I'm just curious to know what that looked like for you I guess it is really hard right because actually this sounds quite cliche that's okay but I think when you're a teenage girl like you always want to talk to your mum about stuff of course um and actually I think or I don't actually think it was then because you have my stepmom and I call my mum but like particularly when I was like 13 or 14 I like really found it quite difficult when I was like teenage and being really like angry and stuff Mm. um I think the older I got the more I sort of accepted it Mm. and I was like well I very much saw myself as being on my own Mm. Um, and I very much saw my friends as being my family and very much understood that like I had to carve my own path Um, and this meant that I was quite influenced or influenced a lot by my teachers at school I think in a way that other people probably Mm. aren't because I felt like I had more in common with them than I do with my parents Mm. Um, would you say your school community and your friends were supportive knowing that everything that you'd gone through as a child would you say they were I don't think they knew I don't think it's actually we're talking about this because I don't think anyone like this is the first time I've sat down and never like told the full story Um, I don't think wow I, I like, 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 I don't think any of, because it's kind of weird to be like, oh, this, and like, I assumed some of the teachers knew, because I assumed my, like, primary school knew things that happened, and like, they'd known that, you know, I'd left school when I was seven and would have kept that, and then that my mum had passed away and all that stuff, mm. um, so I think they sort of knew and understood, but I don't think, I think my friends understand me far more now and actually I think they have and they have some understanding of our relationship with context and obviously like 
I've left my parents' house and like they've they know I've been in that abusive relationship and stuff and they care about that. But actually I've always and I do think this is bad, but I've always almost wanted to separate myself from it quite mm-hmm. a lot. Because actually it's if you meet someone and they don't tell you who they are now, and let's say I hadn't said to you like I then went to this fancy school and I do this now and I like went to a good university and I'm very normal and have lots of friends and like you know remarkably well adjusted but if you heard the story it would I think feel like something from a book or feel like something it it feels like something that doesn't really happen to people or certainly doesn't really happen to people that I know right Mm. um I think all my friends now are like very middle class like I'm quite middle class and actually like this isn't the kind of thing that you like like middle class people see no they don't and probably don't talk about either yeah and I don't talk about particularly not like white middle class people like they like and and often people have and I always think about this because like I've been in environments so I've seen obviously like I'm talking to you about the refugees who were there in Golders Green in the bed and breakfast and I've seen and been with them and I've seen and been with you know girls whose parents are like CEOs of like multinational banks and stuff Gosh. and actually I think the interesting thing or like the thing that I've learned is that like you can call people indulgent and you can think people are indulgent but when people genuinely like when something is troubling them or they're, find, they're finding something really hard or when they're going through grief, like it doesn't matter whether, you know, your parents divorced and, you know, someone took one half of the house and your dad took the other half and it's all messy or whether your parents passed away in a really nice comfortable hospice or unlike you're well looked after or if your parent passed away somewhere that was less comfortable and you've had to flee or whatever obviously those things are materially different but I do think the experience and like the personal experience of emotion is the same and Mm. that's what's quite hard is that I feel quite uncomfortable talking about it to other people because I think one it's such like a dramatic story and two I think it's quite culturally a story that people can't get their heads around um Mm. and I think that people actually would find it a barrier to understanding or I think the people I know would feel very guilty Mm. Um, okay if that makes sense it does 100% so so that kind of takes me on to the next bit of the conversation where I want to talk about psychotherapy and counselling with you because that mm. is a massively white, middle-class female profession. Mm. So knowing what you've just said there, that it can be uncomfortable for that demographic to talk mm. about, how does that make you feel, you know, if you were to see a middle-class white psychotherapist about your grief let's just say hypothetically you do in the future decide to do something mm. like that I don't know if you already have mm. you're sitting in front of a white middle-class therapist <laughs> now how does that make you feel knowing all of your cultural experiences what you went through how chaotic it was it is di- you know probably different in their eyes yeah what, what does that mean for you then 
I, I mean, I have a great little anecdote about it. So I have seen, and I'm very much poorer for it, but I think she took a bit of a pity on me and gave me mates rates. But after I broke up with my first boyfriend, I went, I was depressed and I had been through periods of depression, quite severe depression. Like, I've been severely suicidal and that sort of thing. Um, and I remember when I made the choice to go and see a therapist more recently, I like purposely did loads of research and like classic me. I was like, this woman sounds like she has a Pakistani name. She looks brown. She's got three degrees. One of them's from Cambridge. And like my like Asian nerd alarms went off and I was like, right, she's the one. Um, and as a sort of like backup to it. And like I had a decent experience with her, but I remember the first time I tried to get help. And actually if I'd had help then, maybe my life would have been a bit easier, but it was when I was back at university. Um, and pretty much everyone I know, and actually like, we talk about this separately a lot, but like particularly at Oxford and Cambridge, mental health amongst the student population is incredibly poor. Yeah. Um, Part of it has to do with pressure and part of it has to do with like the kinds of people who get placed at those universities anyway. Mm. Um, and it's all loved. Part of it has to do with, you know, being a millennial and like late stage capitalism and FOMO, whatever. Mm. Um, but actually I went and I went to the university counselling service uh, after something that happened to me while I was at university and I was like I just need to talk actually I just like I've realized that I've been holding on to this for so long and there are lots of other things I want to talk about and I remember you know when you have your first session with a therapist and they're like let's just, just tell me about you just like let me get sense for you and like mm. and I remember I can't remember what the woman's name was but I can see the room and she had like curly blonde hair was sort of like middle-aged white woman and I was like telling her part of it and then she was like okay you can have five sessions and after the first half hour was up she was like you know why I love being a therapist and I was like I don't know it's like people come to me with their like really interesting really different stories oh god and I was literally there fucking awful like I like it had taken me so much I was really upset it taken me so much courage. Like I have, be, I've become far more emotionally open. But like, understandably, like that kind of experience makes you quite emotionally closed. Um, and I was such an emotionally closed person, and I was like, I'm going to go and talk to someone about that. I just never went back. Like the yeah. idea that someone who you've turned to to speak to you about your life perceives like. As entertainment. She was entertainment as a story, as like an object of fascination, as a curiosity. And it's like, I'm not a curiosity. I'm not something to like gawp at. I'm actually a person. And that's why I've come to see you, not to have you gawp at me and be like, and I could just see it, like her going around to her friends and be like, oh my God, I like spoke to this really in- fascinating story about this girl. How different are they? And like, I, I, I could feel myself being objectified from afar horrible Um, horrible and yeah so that that's not like how I would feel that's how I did feel and I actually then it was another as as I said it 
wasn't till my first relationship broke down. So it wasn't till three years later that I felt comfortable to go and actually see a therapist and talk about anything again. Mm, and, uh, and I, partly because it was that experience. Mm, and the therapist that you saw again, was it someone from BAME or? Was... Yeah, yeah. So I found um, the person I found, I sort of did the some Pakistani research. The lady, yeah. Pakistani lady with the degree from Cambridge, is that right? With yeah. a degree, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, I remember being in a really like terrible mental state and being like, okay, what do I need? I need Pakistani woman, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I need to comfort myself that this person knows what they're talking about. So I'm going to find the person with the most degrees I can find. And I know that this is not an accurate way of assessing whether someone's a suitable therapist or not, but it's like the best tool I have right now to comfort myself. And in a way it is, you want to make sure they've got the right accreditation and qualifications, but also that they're from your community because of what happened in your previous experience. Um, And I'm really sorry that you went through that. Um, But I'm really glad that you are open in sharing that with me and our listeners today, because that is something that is very important. There aren't enough BAME therapists out there. We do exist, no. but it's a, a another complex issue in the world of psychotherapy. Yeah, um, and 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 I think just on that point, like you have big universities like constantly trying to attract like diverse talent. They desperately want students from different backgrounds to come in and be part of their community but are actively not providing that they're doing mental health provision but they're not thinking about who they're providing for like who's Mm. going to be more likely to need the support and actually if I'm completely honest who's going to be more likely to have have parents yeah yeah or or actually to have parents who can't pay for the support so who has to access it's going to be BAME it's going to be BAME exactly and like they they obviously haven't thought about this and it's not no. part of yeah I think it's a t- I think it's a bit of a ticking time bomb when it comes to access and mental health to be honest mm. so with that in mind if you had a message for the white middle class female psychotherapist <laughs> that will have the AME clients because mm. um, they will sometimes we don't have a choice who we see yeah. we're a waiting list for so long yeah for the for the white middle class therapist that really does want to get close to BAME community and help BAME, what would what would your message be to them? I know it sounds. I don't want to teach therapists to sort of suck eggs, but I think it's really to listen. Um, and the reason I say listen, I know it sounds a bit glib, is that actually there's a difference between hearing it hearing someone's experience and seeing it as a story and treating it and going through the motions of engaging with it and actually listening which to me means looking past the person or the circumstances that are in front of you and actually thinking really deeply about how they've interacted with their story Mm. Um, and I think that's sort of the glib like hearts version and I think the sort of less glib version is actually there are lots of things and we're talking about race here but you could talk about any 
in intersection at all like if you were speaking to uh someone who is lgbt plus about their relationships then i would expect any professional therapist to have an understanding of like the theory around that have done some reading about like typical ways in which these problems relating to people coming out and things like that could manifest themselves and I think people just have to do the same like it is part of part of this work is educating yourselves mm. and actually understanding and being like well how can I access these stories what's normal and what's not and actually you know you've got I, one of the great parts about being in the world that we are with the internet is that different people's stories are far easier to access now than they are previously so like mm. there there are online magazines for women of color who tell these stories and actually and this isn't for me to say you know you should read the stories to their curiosity it's that people should read and understand how different families work so actually when someone does come to a therapist's story like mine like they're not they're, they're not automatically shocked like if I turn around and want to say well I feel really uncomfortable because our family's really tight-knit because my parents are cousins which yes I agree I don't particularly agree with but I don't really have any say in the matter then mm -hmm. I should feel like uncomfortable or like I have to explain to the person trying to help me that that's like a normal thing and that that's the case because it just adds to the shame and the weight and the guilt Mm. that often surrounds seeing a therapist particularly when you come from an ethnic minority background yeah yeah I hear you on that we've articulated that so well um you've got maybe 50 minutes in the chair and you don't want to spend 50 minutes having to explain your background to someone you know maybe yeah, exactly. basic things like a Muslim funeral maybe or what the cultural nuances are um, as you said like parents being cousins and uh, all these other factors um, that can be quite damaging and detrimental at times especially when they come with this curiosity that you're entertainment and it's shocking to them and news to them uh, it shouldn't be for people that mm. are in the psychotherapy and cancelling field um, it really shouldn't and uh, maybe there'll be a new hashtag trending psychotherapy. <laughs> so, so white, like charity so white. Which I'm, so white. Grief which, so which, white. Yeah, grief so white. <laughs> so it is, you know, you see these panels and these events and I'm like, where are like, where is my community? I've, I'm getting a bit tired of talking to white people about death, which kind of brings me on to psychotherapy so white, charity. Yeah so white you're involved with that movement right I just wondered if you could quickly tell me about it before we move on to you know the the end of yeah sure the, yeah um yes yeah, so if you haven't seen it just search charity so white on twitter it's a hashtag um and it basically started when a friend of mine Fatima she does a lot of diversity and inclusion work or I hate the phrase diversity and inclusion um and was looking through some citizens' advice, uh, yeah. like materials, training materials, 
and she found the version of her website and like I'm sure you can look it up if you just Google it. But it was basically some training materials that someone had produced and it wasn't even like there wasn't any context or any de- details. It was just a list. It was like people working with BAME uh, service users may find like and it was things like an obsession with cash, people being uh, incredibly close to their families, but phrased in such a way that it felt like negative. Um, and a like a like massive power imbalance between the genders and like all these incredibly stereotypical things phrased in this really negative way with absolutely no context. And it was just like if you were a white person volunteering with citizens advice and this is all you read about BAME people coming to use a service then you would assume that they were like cash obsessed idiots who locked their wives in caves and only ever spoke to members of their family um and yeah it wasn't good at all and citizens advice took it really badly sorry They, they took it really badly so they did a report into it eventually um and actually what happened was their report focused all on process and not on actually how this was able to happen. And they hid behind the fact that um, the person who wrote the training was a person of colour and therefore that must mean that it's not racist because people who oh, aren't white can't God. be racist, right? Yeah. Um, and basically off the back of that, we saw the campaign which was looking um, at that but at other issues within the sector and we had loads of people making disclosures to us over Twitter about different organisations mm. and like racist behaviours within those uh, organisations I was one of them <laughs> we, all, I mean, we all were because we've all worked in charities and we've experienced something that we've never been able to say out loud actually maybe yeah. we've just thought about it over time and it's really painful actually being able to disclose all of that on Twitter felt like I was healing I mean I'm just talking about me here Mm. but I think it was like a healing process for so many of us yeah well it's really good to hear that you know people have found it useful to some extent because actually is and it is harder it's, it's, it's almost harder thinking about the charity sector like the third sector than it is about any other because you're meant to be the good guys right like you're meant to yeah. Treat everyone fairly and you're meant Are we to... though? Are they are they? Not we are, are, they? are no. they? No, exactly. And that's why the problem is even more like pervasive and like difficult to grab hold of because you can hide behind this veneer of like morality and justice and actually you're perpetuating structures that keep people down and actually you don't have people of colour or BAME people in positions of power. You have BAME led orgs that are significantly and like continuously underfunded and we have CEOs who we went to we went to meet a CEO of a large organization and he's scared and actually the thing is that allies are scared because of the conservative nature of the institutions that surround them Mm. Um, and that is really really hard I know one of mine one of the things that we've got is a couple of people on the organizing team get speaking engagements and uh, one of them came back and sort of texted us the other day because she came back and said, I've had a horrible time. And we were like, well, how was it? And she was like, well, it was for f- funders and there were lots of sort of investor types there. And oh, someone said, gosh. and someone said to me, and this woman, she's, you know, she's honestly, when I grow up, I want to be her. 
she's like incredibly eloquent like the most eloquent person I've ever met like incredibly switched on she has like three degrees and like is just a powerhouse and like yes I know everything yes I can describe this and you're like someone turned to her and was like well you're a young woman what do you know about this and actually like to her face and she was just so um and then there was a another line which is well we don't really have time to think about diversity because we're 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 thinking about how to achieve results Uh, and then she was like haven't you realized that removing structural racism and achieving results are one and the same thing yes and then they are they are you cannot have a sector that serves the needs of people if you don't remove the structures Mm. and how can you get these results if you don't address these these systemic problems yeah (sighs) people don't see the fact that there are problems like it's just Honestly, uh, I say this all the time. I say this to somebody who's very middle class now. So, like, please help them those. But, uh, like, like, it is just, like, rich white people. It is just middle class white people. Just particularly middle class white women, like, mouthing off being like, we know everything. It's like, you don't. You literally uh, you don't. The white saviour complex, maybe. I mean, it is that. Going on there. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, it is just. I mean, I work in politics as well. And sometimes I'm just like... Because why people need to stop. They don't need to stop. Somebody tell them that they've been running ahead for far too long. They should take a rest, have Go. a brownie, have a samosa. Like, we can, we've got it already. <laughs> have a samosa, I like it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, we're reaching the end. It's been incredibly, you know... Um, humbling to speak to you and have you share your story I wanted to kind of end with um, perhaps you'd like to share some memories of your mum if that's comfortable anything that you remember that you'd like to share with us I guess it's weird and it sounds like it sounds really sad when I say it but like it's quite hard to pull like any like really really happy or like any happy ones I know that, that that sounds odd but I guess the things you remember are the things that are like really significant and that are really really big and so the like little moments get lost but I do remember we um like had a Christmas while she was at home she was really really unwell and at home and I've got a picture of it somewhere but uh she let me paint her face and and she's just there, the picture of her just lying there with like white makeup with badly drawn red hearts um, on her face. And she's just like ridiculous. And I guess it's always the little things, right? Like, so I really, really love um, detective fiction, especially Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. And that's basically because I used to always watch like Poirot and Miss Marple. And my mum liked. Columbo as well but I wasn't really a fan of him oh yes I I was all about and I still like to this day like love detective fiction and I love Agatha Christie I like I love Poirot really really deeply and like whenever I'm really sad I like listen to one of the like BBC radio versions on my phone like as I drift off to sleep um I it sounds really odd but I think that that very much comes from her and my time spent with her um, and I guess the other one is I vaguely, vaguely remember being really small and like her standing on the street canvassing. 
I think she was a member of the Green Party. Oh, wow. um, the classic her, like, or always like, pin your tail to the no-hoper. Um, and it was like on Hounslow High Street canvassing and I was next to her. And I vaguely remember that. Um, and sometimes I guess now I'm always like, when I make a decision, I try and, and I guess I've built up an image of her in my head. So I, I like I, I see her as quite and like the stories that I hear about her because I didn't really know her as or I n- never really got the chance to find out what she was like as a young woman right which I think mm. is the saddest part is I never like got the chance to hear about like her being a teenager the things she's found mm. her politics like what she enjoyed I remember she really liked Bon Jovi and that's quite funny <laughs> and she was a bit of a punk and went on like C&D marches I think she marched against the Iraq war I vaguely remember being at home and my dad being like a mob's gone to march um and those those are the things I sort of carry with me and I think now when I make a decision I very much and no one else likes it no one else really understands because it's obviously totally made up I think about how she would feel Mm. with the decision that I took and I mm. like make make the decision with being like from what you know or what you understand about her and the kind of person she was and like she gave me a really strong sense of justice and like the strong sense of justice and her belief in equality and like belief in education how would she feel about the choice that you've made mm. um, and I think that's it's not really a memory but I guess it's something that I carry with me and use all the time even though I guess it's like not a very scientific tool <laughs> so we're going to move on to the gratefulness challenge before we close oh do, do you know what this is no which is <laughs> I'm like oh god there's a challenge there's a little challenge so um I did a gratefulness challenge about a year ago I was going through a bit of a hard time and mm. I guess people were trying to tell me to be a bit more positive you know these positive Mm. warriors um so I was like okay fine I'll do it so I found it incredibly hard at times because I was clutching at straws on some days Mm. but it's okay I've heard from some of my guests to be grateful for the same thing every day if you have to Mm. so I just thought I'd throw this into the mix in the podcast in the Mm. here and now one thing that you're grateful for, Henna, and I'll join you as well. Do you want to go first or shall I? Um, I, I can go first, actually. Yeah. Um, I think, well, the first thing is, like, not to, like, be teacher's pet, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity that you've just had to speak because I feel like it's nice to be able to tell your story to someone who, like, listens and understands. Um, but I guess the other thing is you talked about charity so white. And actually, we had a meeting last week where we introduced loads of new people to the organising committee and we were there. And actually, times are pretty hard for me right now. And actually, when I get tired about work or my relationship or how I feel, or my mental health, I very much use it as like a source of strength. Mm. I very much think that there is a place in my life where there is an element of certainty and happiness and power Mm. um and that for me is a real source of like I'm really grateful for that for me that's a real 
source of comfort and power knowing that I have these people there with me fighting against something that's really bad. Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with us. That was easy. You could probably do this challenge every day if you wanted to. (laughs) I think I probably will have to, to be honest. (laughs) I found it really hard, but I think I'm going to go with... I feel like our communities have to always bury, survive, bury, survive. And it's this cycle of bury and survive. But now that I'm doing this podcast, I feel like I'm healing, actually. Mm. I don't know if our communities spend enough time healing. It is always about burying and surviving. And actually, I think it's historical. I think it's in our blood because of things that have happened in history. And now I feel like I am healing and I hope that everyone else that's listening, even yourself and Mm -hmm. our guests that have appeared are in that process too, if, if they haven't already started. So yeah, that's kind of me on the gratefulness thing. Yeah. Well, that's, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really, really great speaking to you, Hannah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Yeah, and I wish you continued success with your, you know, everything, general election and all the campaigns that you're doing and Charity So Why. Thank you for being a part of that. I really appreciated it. And, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for doing this. It feels like something that there's a huge gap and you're filling that gap with something really worthwhile so hopefully people will get something from it thank you you're in the bereavement room i'm your host kolsima ali that was the incredible henna shah she was talking to me about her mother who sadly died in 2005 henna was only just 10 years old Henna is doing some amazing things. She works in politics and she's an activist. She's fighting for labour. She's also rooting out racism at Charity So White. You can reach out to Henna on Twitter at HennaShah94 or you can tweet Charity So White at Charity So White.